0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode sixteen in our series for two thousand seventeen. And today's date is Friday the nineteenth of May. And Leon, this week we have a big chat with uh, Anna Bly, the uh, now the head of uh, the Australian Bankers Association, having been the Queensland Premier. And she's talking about how the banks feel about the tax. And then after that, a really interesting piece with uh, Saul Eslake.
1: Saul is going to be talking to us all about where the budget falls short on housing affordability. And there's a pretty clear
0: view of what's going on. They're, they ain't going to be all that affordable. Well, let's listen to Anna Bly.
1: Anna Bly, the uh, banks have put in their submissions on the government's uh, bank tax proposal. I mean, what, what's the situation at the moment?
2: The government announced in the federal budget a new tax on banks. Uh, they have then put in place an extraordinarily short and truncated timetable for the legislation to be drafted and for banks to help shape legislation that might make sense in the context of Australian banking. The banks were given, uh, I think it was about three and a half days to put in submissions. They were all provided to the government on the 15th of May. Uh, those submissions are all have all been made public uh, and uh, I think all of them. Go to the questions of complexity and how important it is to ensure that you don't end up distorting uh, one part of government policy with um, an application of this tax to particular parts of banking. The government has committed that uh, on Wednesday, um, the 17th of May, just uh, you know, less than sort of 48 hours later, they will provide banks with draft legislation and give banks 24 hours to respond. Um, you know, frankly, I think whatever Australians think about this tax, uh, they should be very worried about uh, this extreme acceleration of the normal legislative processes that would normally allow uh, you know, at least a month for response from an industry as important as banking. Uh, the prospects here of uh, le- legislation that has unintended consequences are very worrying.
1: Now, uh, what are these consequences? Uh, will, what, what will this mean for customers of banks and uh, what will it mean for shareholders?
2: The government has indicated they're seeking to raise 1.2 billion dollars per year from this tax and they're seeking to do that to fill um, their own budget black hole. And this is a tax on one industry... Uh, unprecedented in Australian um, lawmaking and not just on one, one industry but only five companies in that um, industry. So all of this is uncharted legislative um, drafting territory. Uh, if government gets this wrong, um, right now they're trying to work out which parts of bank's activities should be subject to this tax. If they get that wrong, uh, then you have the very real possibility, for example, that they end up uh, with the banks end up with a much higher bill. Uh, if uh, for example, banks have a range of regulatory requirements uh, to make sure that they have prudential uh, capital buffers against any big external shocks. Uh, if um, If they tax put the tax on that, then there will be competing policy uh, or competing policy outcomes. On the one hand, banks having to um, you know build bigger capital uh, reserves. Uh, at the same time as those reserves being taxed. Um, So you can see the distortionary effects that might have. Well, The government makes uh, the claim that banks should absorb this tax and uh, really that is code for uh, the fact that in the Treasurer's view this uh, tax and the cost of it should be imposed on bank shareholders. The, very, the most significant part of um, bank profits go to shareholders. The biggest group of shareholders are um, Australian superannuation funds. So if you're an Australian with a superannuation account, uh, then this will affect the value of your shares because uh, your superannuation account, if you've got a superannuation, then you are a bank shareholder. But uh, the other very significant group of shareholders in our banks are direct individual mum and dad uh, retirees and others uh, so the Commonwealth Bank alone for example has 800,000 indirect uh, individual shareholders uh, and their value will be eroded if the um, when you know if the banks uh, put the cost there um, the treasurer affairs to think that there is some some way that you can absorb this in a way that means that uh, it, it falls somewhere where it causes no pain That's just nonsense. Uh, Banks only have a limited source of places where they can draw this sort of impost um, and this increase to their costs. You know, it will either fall on savers or borrowers or shareholders. There is no pot of money or paying taxes uh, that they can draw on. Uh,
1: The government, though, has clearly made the decision knowing that uh, uh, the banks are... uh Not that popular at the moment with the public. And I noticed the latest Fairfax Ipsos poll shows that 68% of voters think the bank tax is a good thing. So the government does not expect any feedback from the public, negative feedback from the public on this. I mean, what's your view about that?
2: Well, I think you're right. There's no doubt uh, that the government has done this to banks because they believe them to be unpopular. The Treasurer has said as much. Uh, which I think is a very poor basis for making public policy of any kind. It's an even more uh, dangerous basis for making policy about Australia's finance sector, uh, which has such an important impact on the economy. Banks are not like any other business in the sense that it is banks that facilitate and fund and support other businesses in the economy. So, All of that is a very complex um, and sometimes fragile system, ecosystem, uh, and to barge in and impose a cost on that part of the economy that actually drives all of the other parts on the basis that government believes banks to be unpopular... I think is a very disturbing trend in the way that uh, Australia is building its legislative and regulatory framework around um, fight the financial sector. But I would also say I'm not, on the one hand, I'm not surprised that people's very first reaction uh, may be that they think this is a good idea because, of course, what people see is, um, you know, banks make big profits and therefore they think they can afford it. The job for the banks is to make sure that people understand where those profits go and if you cut those profits, then you will be eroding uh, the value of superannuation um, funds and you will be eroding the dividend revenue from um, from Australians, including retirees who are living off that revenue. If uh, the, treasurer, um, pre- the Treasurer's view prevails that this should be passed on to shareholders, then it is a pay cut for those uh, retirees uh, who have been worked hard their life, who, who are living off the earnings of those savings and had a right to expect um, a comfortable retirement. So there is no pain free uh, here. But I do think banks have acknowledged and it's important that they acknowledge uh, that there are reasons for uh, the public view of them at this particular moment in history and you know, banks have accepted that they need to do a better job with customers, they need to do a better job of getting the balance between customers and shareholders right, and that there are some significant issues in culture and in conduct um, that have to be rectified. Uh, There are now, I think there's been 17 separate reviews, investigations and inquiries into all of those issues in banks over the last 18 months and some are still on foot Uh, The banks have uh, made very significant commitments to big reforms and big changes, and we're yet to see some of those play out into customer experience. Uh, But we need to be very clear. The things that customers don't like about banks and which banks are trying to fix will not be in any way aided or assisted by imposing a tax on banks.
1: Is this the uh, government's uh, mining tax moment? I mean, can we expect a mining tax-type campaign? against the government
2: well as you'll appreciate we the the industry has yet to see the legislation and the draft legislation the government made a commitment to providing to the industry uh, on um wednesday the 17th of may so as you would expect the industry will continue to do everything in its power uh, to dissuade the government from imposing this tax Uh, and to ensuring that uh, if the government is hell-bent with the support of the opposition, uh, then they will do everything in their power to make sure that this tax does not unnecessarily um, uh, have unintended consequences. I do note that I understand uh, the leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, has indicated on radio this morning that Labor would support a Senate inquiry to make sure that uh, the government's um, rush into this legislation uh, is actually given the time Uh, and consideration and review that it warrants, given the serious nature of the government's initiative.
1: So you're saying what this legislation needs and what this whole thing needs is some more time to actually consider and look at?
2: I I don't think anyone should underestimate the complexity uh, of the um, initiative that the government has embarked on. As I said earlier, this is uncharted legislative territory carving one sliver of the economy out for special taxation treatment and then not just that whole industry but only five companies in it. There is an unseemly haste here by the government to get uh, this legislation uh, into the parliament and passed by the end of June. I think we all know enough about federal parliament to know that the wheels generally turn a lot slower than that. Uh, While that might cause frustrations in itself sometimes, that's about getting it right and this is too important to get wrong. Anna
1: Blythe, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Well,
0: there's the story of the banks. I'm not sure it's going to wear with the public, and they may well change it a bit. I think the banks won't do themselves any good with the public.
1: Uh, look, the government has clearly zeroed in on the banks, knowing that the banks aren't that popular, which is why they're doing it. And it's a chance to raise 62 billion dollars. You know, I don't know how this is going to play out. I mean, the banks possibly could do a mining tax style campaign. Let's see how that goes. Uh,
0: That's not going to work.
1: Let's just watch that campaign. Listening to Anna, you
0: think that's arguable as well. They don't want to carry any of the load of the uh, economic problems we've
1: got. Well, the issue is that the government's got to fix the budget, and they've got to find some way to do it, and so they've targeted the banks.
0: Yeah, and everybody else come to that. We're all in the same boat and the boat's got holes in it. Enough of that. Now let's listen to some sense from Saul.
1: Well, so it's like the budget had uh, several measures to improve housing affordability. What's your view of it?
3: Well, I describe the budget in the housing affordability section as being good in parts, although the good parts were relatively small. And the best that can be said about the other parts is that they weren't as bad as they could have been based on pre-budget speculation. The good parts, the parts for which I do give the government credit, are the measures Directed at improving housing affordability for people on low incomes who need to and will always need to rent. This is an area that's been long neglected by governments of both sides of politics, even though arguably the needs here among people on income support payments or other types of low incomes who are renting rather than seeking to buy homes is arguably the greatest of anywhere in the housing market. So the proposal to establish a means by which affordable rental housing providers will be able to borrow more at lower interest rates for longer terms in order to provide more affordable rental housing, the so-called bond aggregator, based on the UK model, is I think a good idea. The incentives the budget's going to provide for private, institutional or philanthropic investment in affordable rental housing, are a good idea, although I think they'll only be effective at the margin. The additional $355 million that the government's committing to homelessness programs is also well directed to an important area of need. The government is trying to use a combination of carrots and sticks to cajole the states into doing more to improve the supply of housing, which is, of course, primarily a state government responsibility. So, again, measures designed to encourage state governments to transfer titles to rental housing, which state governments presently own, to not-for-profit housing providers so that they can, in turn, use that as security for additional borrowing so that they can provide more affordable housing, uh, something the states could do themselves but have shown no great inclination to over the past two decades, is a good idea, as is the provision of funds and incentives for state governments to address some of the infrastructure bottlenecks that have made it more difficult for the private sector to provide more housing, whether for rent or for sale to would-be homebuyers. So a tick for all of those measures. They're areas that won't get the government many votes, but they're the right thing to do, and they've been doing them. On the other hand, the more high profile measures that are ostensibly directed towards improving housing affordability for would be home buyers, I think, fell, fall well short of what might have been helpful and in some cases will probably make the situation a bit worse rather than improving it. In particular, I'm referring here to super for housing light, as I call it, the idea that people who are looking to buy homes for the first time will be able to make uh, contributions out of their pre-tax income to their superannuation savings accounts over and above the compulsory 9.5% requirement and will subsequently be able to draw down those savings plus the earnings on them up to a limit of $30,000 in order to accumulate a bigger deposit than they might have been if they were saving out of post-tax income and earning bank deposit type rates of return. If they have a bigger deposit, they will almost certainly be able to secure a bigger mortgage. And the result of that will be, for those who are able to take uh, advantage of this scheme, is that they will end up paying more for the housing than they otherwise would. And here's my problem. that history shows that Any scheme that allows people, encourages people to spend more buying housing than they otherwise would, whether it's first homeowner grants or stamp duty concessions or this new super for housing-like scheme, uh, ends up resulting in more expensive housing rather than a higher proportion of the population owning housing. And we've got 50 years of evidence to support that particular view. Uh, The only good thing I can say about this scheme is that, it won't inflate the pricing of housing as much as the scheme that had been mooted some months earlier this year, which would have seen would-be home buyers dipping into their accumulated superannuation savings, including the compulsory ones, in order to accumulate bigger deposits, which, as I say, would have had a much more marked impact on inflating the price of housing than the scheme which the budget eventually settled on did. But nonetheless, I think that will be its main effect. At most it might reshuffle the queue of would-be first home buyers in favour of those whose circumstances allow them to take advantage of this scheme compared with those who simply can't afford to contribute more than the compulsory amount to their superannuation accounts. This scheme will cause some complexities for superannuation funds, and it is possible given the way that the government is deeming that these contributions will earn a return of the 90-day bank bill rate plus three percentage points per annum, that if for some reason and in practice super funds don't earn that rate of return then the scheme will in fact allow people to dip into other superannuation savings and thus at the margin detract from what they have to support themselves ultimately in retirement but as i say this scheme uh won't do as much harm as the one that had been mooted earlier in the year would do. The other measures with regard to housing affordability, I think, are just tinkering at the margin. The purported incentives to older people to downsize, which provide that they can put some of the profits they make in selling their family home into their superannuation accounts without falling foul of the caps that were introduced last year, won't make much difference because the biggest obstacles to older people selling the home they've lived in for a long time and moving something to smaller is not whether they can put the money into superannuation, but rather whether it affects their eligibility for the age pension, which this doesn't change, and having to pay stamp duty on the property they subsequently buy after they've sold their family home. This scheme doesn't change that either. So I don't think that will do much good. The government simply hasn't been prepared to pull the levers, which it could pull if it wanted to make a big difference to housing affordability, namely the capital gains tax discount and negative gearing. All they've really done with regard to negative gearing is to prevent negatively geared investors from taking tax-deductible holidays to visit their properties which might happen to be interstate good on them for doing that that was a rot that needed to be cut out but to imagine that's make, going to make a big difference to housing affordability i think is very far-fetched indeed
1: that, that's quite remarkable i mean uh, so unless they were prepared to rebate stamp duty paid to state governments uh, there's not much the federal government can do
3: well not in regard to people downsizing into smaller homes once they've retired Tired and their dependents are moved on, other than perhaps to include the family home in the pension assets test and raise the threshold at which people start to lose their age pension. Now, that's a mixture of carrot and stick, of course, whereas the government only wanted to provide carrot and there would be some administrative complexities in going down that path. But what they've done in this particular area, I don't think will do much to free up houses that are perhaps by some standards too big for those who are currently living in them that could be sold to people with, for example, growing families, which is the stated intention. As I say, if the government really wanted to do something to improve housing affordability, what it would need to do would be to dampen down the demand that would be 1st home buyers face from investors who in most cases already own at least one other property but who get their mortgage costs subsidised through negative gearing and don't have to pay as much tax on the profits they make when they sell their homes, assuming that they make profits, as they do on other types of income, such as wages and salaries. But for essentially political reasons, the government isn't prepared to touch either negative gearing or the capital gains tax discount. So the opportunity which it has is one that went begging in this budget.
1: Which, in other words, means uh, the budget does little for housing affordability.
3: Uh, that's absolutely right. As I say, the budget may well do something for the availability of affordable rental housing for people on low incomes who are looking to rent, uh, and that's good. I don't... To detract from. I don't want to detract from the merit of what the government's doing in that space. But what they're seeking to do for housing affordability will have very little good impact at all and may have some additional harmful impact to the extent that the super for housing light scheme allows people who take advantage of it to spend more on housing than they otherwise would, which, as I say, history tells us serves only to inflate the price of existing housing rather than to increase the homeownership. Right.
1: Saul Leslake, thank you very much again for your time. That's been very illuminating.
3: And that's a pleasure. Thanks for having me as always.
1: So, what do you think, Leon? Well, yeah, the the budget will do very little for housing affordability because, as Saul says, they don't tackle the big issues, which are the uh, capital gains tax. Concessions and negative gearing.
0: Yeah, and they're going to have to do that at some point. Bear in mind, we're $500 billion in the hole. And now the news, and it's uh, pretty good
1: this week. Well, it's amazing, Gary. Turmoil in the White House and US President Donald Trump's self-inflicted crisis has hit the markets. A week of political upheaval after Trump Fired FBI Director James Comey, followed by reports the President asked Comey to end a probe into his former National Security Advisor and also discussed sensitive national security information about Islamic State with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, have sent shares globally and the US dollar... Heading south, Asian shares fell for the the first time in three sessions with the MSCI Asia-Pacific index down 0.3%. And the share market in Australia was savaged with the S&P ASX 200 index closing down 65 points or 1.1% at 5,786. This morning... US stocks opened lower, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average falling 0.8%, the S&P 500 slumping 0.7%, and the NASDAQ Composite Index down 0.9%. It's been the biggest one-day drop for the S&P in more than a month, and safe haven investments like gold and the yen rose, reflecting investor uncertainty. The US dollar has also taken a hit, with the Bloomberg Dollar Spot Index down almost 5%. And as far as Trump's concerned, I think the end has got to be nigh. It doesn't look good, now, because this latest memo from Trump to Comey amounts to obstruction of justice, and that is quite serious.
0: Uh, it's highly serious, and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that can be hung on that.
1: Now, to China, and retail sales, urban investment, and industrial output there have all come in lower for April than the previous month. Retail turnover slipped from 10.9% in March to 10.7% in April. Industrial output rose 6.5% last month. That's down from 7.6% in March. Urban investment recorded at 8.9% growth compared with 9.2% the previous month. And this slowdown coincides with Chinese authorities moving to rein in the country's swelling debt levels.
0: Which is on the back also of uh, reduced export market for them.
1: But it's It's not actually, it looks like uh, troubling signs for the Chinese economy. Now to Australia. And home loans to investors have fallen to the lowest level in 10 months following a regulatory clampdown and the Turnbull government's efforts to cool the Sydney and Melbourne housing market. Figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics on Monday show home loans to investors as a proportion of all loans dropped 1.25 percentage points in March to 48%. That's down from a high of over half of all home loans in January. And Australian wages growth is stuck at a record low and it's now failing to keep up with inflation. Figures from the Australian Bureau Bureau of Statistics show that wages grew by just 0.5% during the March quarter in seasonally adjusted terms. That leaves a year-on-year increase at 1.9%. And that's below Australia's inflation rate, which came in last month at
0: 2.1%. And just think of the uh, problem that gives the RBA. I mean, they know about their problem, but what do you do now? We've got wages dropping so low. We've
1: got wages not keeping up with inflation, and that is a pro- and it's also a problem for the government because it's going to mean less tax coming in. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia has indicated that its main focus now is on the weak labour market and housing prices, which have risen sharply since the last rate cut in August last year, and that's now guiding its monetary policy settings. The RBA, in the minutes of its uh, last meeting at the beginning of the month, said rising gas and electricity prices, combined with the cost of new dwellings, was driving inflation, which is expected to increase gradually from its rate of one and three quarter percent, and was forecast to be above two percent. Working the other way, however, was subdued growth in labour costs and wages, strong competition in the retail sector, with Amazon coming to Australia putting a dampening effect on aggregate inflation. And the RBA said a fall in housing prices could also weigh on consumption growth. In the housing market, it said conditions remain patchy. It also indicates keeping an eye on rising household debt. That's interesting because. That tells us they're not going to raise or cut interest rates at all for the next few months. Betting in the futures market indicates there's no chance the RBA will change its benchmark rate of 1.5% this year. I wouldn't
0: use the word catastrophic, but change is going to cause huge job problems for a lot of people.
1: So they're going to sit on their hands. Consumer confidence has fallen 2.6% to its lowest level since September 2015 following the federal budget. The ANZ Roy morgue Consumer Confidence Index is now sitting 1.6% below its long run average. And the Westpac Melbourne's Institute monthly survey of consumer confidence found consumer sentiments falling by 1.1% from 99 to 98 and that's all caused by the budget because people will be having to pay more tax and we don't have much job now as expected some Australian businesses discovered on Monday morning they were the first Australian victims of the ransomware attack that hit 200,000 entities in 150 countries the federal government says three Australian companies have been confirmed as being hit so far but it's concerned there could be more while Australia avoided much of the chaos at hundreds of thousands of thousands businesses in 150 countries experienced this time around. Australia is likely to face another round of attacks, according to experts. And the big worry is small to medium-sized businesses, and they're the ones most at risk. Cybersecurity Minister Dan Tehan has considered the government could not guarantee that public servants' agencies would be secure from future attacks. Now, the ransomware tsunami is exploiting vulnerabilities in the Windows systems, locking up computers and demanding bit payment in Bitcoin. And the Prime Minister's cybersecurity advisor, Alistair McGibbon, said the attacks in Australia so far hadn't damaged any critical infrastructure, but he warned other businesses could discover they've been affected. And Australians have been urged to update their antivirus software in the wake of the cyber attack.
0: Protection's relatively cheap. One of the first things you do is get an external hard drive and back up all your files, and small business traditionally doesn't do that. Of course, you could always buy a Macintosh and get rid of your Windows machine. That's true too. Because a little guy is being asked for 300 bucks to get his files back multiply that by several million and the Crim's doing, doing well.
1: Now Australia's biggest banks have stepped up their campaign against the federal budget's $6.2 billion bank tax and we spoke about that with Anna Blyes. and that's despite the fact that many smaller banks and credit unions including ME Bank and the Customer Owned Banking Association have welcomed the tax the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank has also praised it saying the measure levels the playing field in the industry. The public is all in favour of the tax. The Fairfax Ipsos poll shows the bank tax has strong support for voters with 68% backing the tax rise among Coalition voters, support ran as high as 74%. Nevertheless, submissions from the banks before the Monday afternoon deadline made it clear the bank levy would have a broader impact on the community. The CBA submission said the costs will be unfairly borne by families and businesses who are our customers and shareholders. The National Australia Bank submission concurred, saying the changes amounted to what they called a tax on every Australian who benefits from and is part of the banking industry and that would be imposed on its 10 million customers, 570,000 direct shareholders and 34,000 employees. Now what's interesting is that former Secretary and now NAB Chairman Ken Henry said the government's tax policy back to the 1980s, when the financial institutions duty was introduced and later scrapped part of the GST reforms. Dr Henry said this was making it more difficult for the banks to build additional capital required by APRA. And the bank proposed bank levy is likely to face a Senate inquiry after Labor backed Henry's call for greater scrutiny of a tax. Bill Shorten says an inquiry will examine protections of customers. Senator Nick Xenophon says it should look at extending the levy to foreign banks. And the Greens say they will support inquiry so that's going to be all up in the air. In and the, the only
0: people totally pleased are the small banks and the credit unions. A lot of people have moved there.
1: Now to corporate news, Gary, and there's some fascinating stuff here. TPG Capital and Ontario Teachers Pensions Plan have upped their offer for Fairfax and have now put out an all-cash $2.7 billion bid for the entirety of Fairfax Media. The offer was for Fairfax's real estate advertising arm, domain, its major mastheads, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Australian Financial Review, and that would have seen Fairfax shareholders keeping the company's assets in New Zealand, the regional newspapers business, its stake in the Macquarie Radio Network, and its 50% share in the Stand streaming venture. Now, in a statement to the market, Fairfax said its board was reviewing the indicative proposal. However, it noted, there's no certainty the revised indicative proposal will result in an offer for Fairfax, what the terms of an offer would be, or whether there will still be a recommendation by the Fairfax board. And the Fairfax board is still moving in the direction of spitting off its domain real estate business as an IPO, and former Fairfax Media chair, Ron Walker, has has endorsed the takeover, saying it would protect the company's journalism while providing a good deal for shareholders. The point is, Fairfax is now in play and that could lead to the breakup of Australia's oldest media company. Fairfax is as old, nearly as old as White Settlement itself. It was started in 1841. Coca-Cola Amital has confirmed that its earnings are on the slide. Speaking at the company's annual general meeting, Managing Director Alison Watkins said the first half 2017 underlying net profit will decline. Revenue had fallen 3.4% during the year. Trading in the company's Australian Beverages Unit in the year to date has been weaker than expected because consumers are shifting away from sugary soft drinks and are moving to buy Bottled water. And if you hold shares in a sugar company? Sell. Now, Australian mining giant Orica has confirmed a 31% increase in half yearly profit, with statutory net profit after tax rising to $195 million. And with miners returning to normal mine plans, business improvement initiatives, and rising ammonia and gas prices in Australia worldwide, it's resulted in underlying earnings before interest and in tax hitting $314 million, which is pretty good. And finally, Gary, West Farmers has scrapped its plans to spin off Works in an IPO. The float has been abandoned in the wake of figures. Last week shown the retail sector is in recession, slipping 0.1% in March 2017 and falling in three of the last four months. Last week's retail turnovers figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics are the weakest figures since 2012, the third weakest since 2000 when the GST introduced. West Farmers has also pulled the float in the lead up to Amazon opening Australia, an event that's likely to force many retailers to the wall and Officeworks selling Paper, pens, phones... Computers. Computers can all be obtained online. And not only that... Amazon can deliver it to your home.
0: Yeah, which of course Officeworks can do, but they don't have the, the thrust of Amazon.
1: So anyway, that's been pulled. It also comes in the wake of recent retail casualties, including David Lawrence, Marks, Palace Shoes, Pumpkin Patch, Rose and Beckett, Herringbone, Seduce, Laura Ashley, Josh Goot, and Kit Nace. Anyway, the Officeworks IPO is now off the table. Because Mr Goiter thinks they won't get a decent offer. They won't get a decent offer, and you've got Amazon coming. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, We've got a fantastic interview with Natty Harpaz, who's the head of the Catch Group, which acquired Pumpkin Patch. And that's going to be fascinating. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at Talking or on Facebook. We look forward to talking to you next week.